Welcome to Mind Reading Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice as well as humanities research. Do doctors and patients speak the same language and how can we use narrative to bridge the evident gaps? These are the questions that animate the work. Mind Reading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life project at Oxford University and the University of Birmingham, and expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland and the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health particularly. This podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we postponed due to COVID-19, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. I'm Dr. Claire Hayes-Brady, your host for the podcast. I'm based in the School of English at UCD, and I'm joined today by Professor Geraldine Meany, Harriet Wheelock, Dr. David Grimes, and Professor Donald Brennan. I'm going to kick off by introducing each speaker, who will then speak for a brief period, and after that we will have a roundtable discussion. Geraldine Meany is Professor of Cultural Theory and Director for the Centre for Cultural Analytics at University College Dublin. Her research interests include gender, ethnicity and the application of digital methodologies to identify recurrent patterns in 19th and 20th century anxieties about contagion, vaccination and public health. In 2020, she was one of the first two Irish women to be awarded an ERC Advanced Investigator Award for research on European migrants in the British imagination, Victorian and Neo-Victorian culture, or Victor. So I'm going to hand over to Geraldine now to, uh, to, to speak. Thanks very much, Claire. Um, I suppose I want to talk primarily about the long history of the relationship between epidemics and vaccination and the way in which both epidemics and responses to vaccine illustrate the best and the worst of, of human nature. Um, it is very well documented that epidemics over the millennia have brought out the worst in human nature. Outbreaks of the Black Death in medieval and early modern Europe led to the scapegoating and massacre of local Jewish populations for centuries. On the other hand, the Black Death also led to the legendary self-sacrifice of the villagers of the English plague village of Eam in Derbyshire, who locked themselves away to suffer in isolation rather than risk spreading the disease. We've heard a lot over the last year about the lethal impact of the Spanish flu a century ago. Medical historian Sam Cohen has noted that it was accompanied by an epidemic of kindness, as he describes it, not least by the elderly in caring for the young who were more vulnerable to that particular pandemic. I would really recommend that anybody who's interested in a very vibrant portrayal and an extremely well-researched one uh, of the impact of Spanish flu on a local population, read the Icelandic novelist Sion's novel Moonstone, the descriptions there of elderly ladies trudging around Reykjavik looking for fuel and food for their cares that the young people that they're looking after um, would really I think be a kind of startling counterpoint to some of the discussions about what do we owe the elderly in the current pandemic um, and anybody who read that alongside Emma Donoghue's Pull of the Stars published last year uh, might get a very vivid picture of what happens when a pandemic rampages until it burns itself out. Similarly, over the centuries, the reaction to vaccines as they have developed gives us an indication of both our capacity for terrible fear leading us to terrible decisions, 
and our capacity to develop, to learn, to educate ourselves and to act in the common good. Over the two centuries, the last two centuries, um, vaccination has vanquished so many once lethal diseases. It has a huge impact, particularly on child mortality in the Western world. It has shown again the best and worst of what human beings can do when they put their minds to it or not. It's worth remembering that the responses to vaccine and, and the development of vaccines has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the Contagion project, which was a collaboration between computer scientists and literary scholars, analysed almost 35,000 volumes of the British Library's 19th century collection, found 3,000 references to vaccines and vaccination, of which the vast majority were either positive or just neutral descriptions. So whilst those who have objected to vaccination have rioted, have caused massive levels of, of fear uh, around public health, they have not been in the majority or vaccination would not have worked to eradicate diseases like smallpox, which were once major killers, particularly of children. We're currently at an extraordinary turning point where for the very first time, science can outrun a pandemic. Drawing on those centuries of research and all the resources of contemporary science, medicine and society, we have done something extraordinary in the last year. It's very easy to despair that with all the resources of modern communications, we are still confronted with the same patterns of suspicion and unease that greeted Jenner and the development of the smallpox vaccine. On the other hand, that suspicion, that ignorance did not triumph. And I think it's really important that we focus on that, uh, that despite all of that unease, the vaccine slowly and gradually, as for example, the understanding of potential for infection, the capacity to produce it expanded, then the success of the vaccine was guaranteed. So human suspicion of it was not fatal, okay? Collectively, individually, it was along the way. There were people who could have survived smallpox particularly who didn't because they weren't vaccinated. When we look at this much, much smaller number of texts from the 19th century, which express anti-vaccination views, we see certain recurrent themes. And those recurrent themes, I think, can be seen in contemporary discourse as well. There is suspicion of authority, above all suspicion of authority. Uh, the mechanisms for public health in the 19th century, as in our own age, are very closely connected with the mechanisms of local and national government and where populations are suspicious of those governments, there can be quite uh, a reticence around availing of vaccines. That isn't universally true. Ireland's actually a really interesting case where the influence of the church actually counteracted suspicion of the state, uh, where a 19th century pontiff decided that Jenner's discovery was a gift from God and propagated that. Um, it was one of the very few instances, I suspect, where uh, papal infallibility was used for the advancement of uh, science. 
So there was quite high uptakes of, of vaccines historically in Ireland. So we, we have that tradition. Uh, the Scottish as well, and that may be to do with patterns of scientific um, education in Scotland, were much more prone than English populations, for example, to take up the vaccine when it was offered to them. As well as suspicion of authority, one of the major factors in uptake of vaccines uh, was the kind of language of horror that was very effectively deployed by anti-vaccinators. Uh, I know that David's going to talk about how this works in the modern world, but certainly within the 19th century texts that we looked at, four words pop out. Pollution, infection, poison and horror. Okay? And associations between those. If you look at some of the cartoons from that period, and this is a, an audio medium, so I can't show them to you, uh, you see particularly the use of horror imagery, gothic imagery, as we would see it. There's a cartoon preserved in the College of Physicians in Philadelphia, where vaccination is portrayed as a giant snake pursuing a mother and child. And particularly that language of horror and pollution and infection um, is being used to frighten mothers. And mothers seem to be the key battleground in the 19th century. Uh, the idea of the mother having to intervene to save her child from this terrible monster of vaccination, which is portrayed in that cartoon, is very striking. Uh, again, in some of George Cruikshank's very famous um, satirical cartoons against smallpox vaccination at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, we have a figure of the dead child, the child who's been killed by the vaccination. Now remember, this is not entirely unreasonable in that this is prior to the invention of antibiotics, prior to an understanding of infection, and, and infection did happen. Okay? Uh, however, by the time you get to the mid-century, there is a statistical argument pushing back against this kind of imagery, which is saying, look at the way child mortality has gone down in areas where there's high levels of vaccination. Okay? And that is being pushed through the popular press. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, what I would argue really is that it's, it's really useful to focus not so much on the horror, the terror and the poison, and to focus on what worked in terms of communicating with the broader publics of the 19th century. Um, the successes of previous generations can be built on. And there was success in reaching out to the public with both factual information and cultural representation of the benefits of vaccination. Now, this has always had a double edge. Uh, there has always been a role for opinion leaders in informing the public. So Charles Dickens, one of the most popular magazines of the 19th century, uh, Household Worlds, which he edited for a very long time, published again and again through the 1850s and onwards, uh, material which on the one hand informed the public about vaccination, certainly you know, um, satirized and criticized those who did not have their children particularly vaccinated, um, but also scrupulously documented, gave figures on the decline in cases of smallpox in areas where there was high levels of vaccination. Um, quite interesting to, to read this piece from July 1850, 
Although vaccination is actively promoted by the Poor Law Board, it is now performed at the public expense and affords almost complete immunity from smallpox, it is still neglected to a great extent by the ignorant classes of society. Some of the objections to it are excuses for negligence. Others are based on a sort of fatalism. Remember, these are the Victorians. They don't mince their moral words. Okay? Uh, but such cases as the Register of Nottingham records, and he's specifically reacting to cases of smallpox in Nottingham, are criminal. And it is to be feared spring from the same cruelty as leads to the sacrifice of children's lives in other circumstances. Now, words like criminal and cruelty are very strong words. And this is a really interesting example where people promulgating vaccination are using language which is just as strong as those who are creating fear about it. Uh, I think ethically we would draw back from describing it as cruelty to refuse to get your children uh, vaccinated, but maybe we should start thinking about this kind of Victorian fighting fire with fire. Okay. Uh, Dickens and Dickens had a huge level of control over these editorials. Uh, describes a woman who had lost a child by disease, who assured the registrar that she would rather lose half a dozen children by it than fly in the face of providence in having them vaccinated. So the language of child sacrifice is being used here uh, to describe those who will not have their children vaccinated. Uh, it's powerful, it's very high impact. Um, now, we do not have statistics on how many people that might have persuaded. Okay, one of the things which may be very uh, powerful is the association with resistance to vaccination with ignorance um, and, and this was a, a, a very class stratified society, uh, that thing of the ignorant classes also means the poor. Okay, so there is a classist element in this as well. Um, Dickens had every reason to understand how little trust the Victorian poor would have put in the poor law board, no matter how free the vaccination programme. In fact, they would have been possibly twice as suspicious because it was offering them this for free. Um, because that was not what it did. Okay. Um, these people who had very high degree of resistance and saw it as flying in the face of providence often were for minority religions. And again, uh, the idea that the state and the established churches were conspiring against them, uh, had a fertile ground because sometimes they were, okay? So the level of trust that you have in the authorities of public health when you start is a really important factor in, in how people react to the possibility of vaccination. In that context in the 19th century, the disease itself was cruelly more effective than public health advice. When vaccination numbers declined, epidemics surged up and then people overcame their hesitancy and vaccinated themselves and their children. They took up the poor law board on its offer. In many of the representations uh, which we've looked at, the role of parents is crucial. Now, this is partly because, again, Victorians, they're obsessed with the family. OK, so everything is done through the family. Uh, but it, one of the other elements in it is the idea of vaccination, or in a minority of cases, resistance to vaccination, as a question of caring, a caring responsibility. So vaccination becomes a caring responsibility. 
possibly more um, effective in that it was much more likely to be read by uh, women and by the lower middle classes, who would be a key group here, was the use of popular fiction rather than editorials. Okay. So rather than editorialising and using this very strong language, there was a creation of narratives. Um, the three volume novel, often serialised in advance, is the soap opera and the box set combined of the mid 19th century. Okay? Uh, in fact, many of the structures of soap opera are actually derived from it as a form. Um, and within popular fiction, the vast majority of representations of vaccination are of it as a normal, sensible, everyday occurrence and a part of everyday family life. Uh, there's also a very strong association between vaccination and hygiene, that it's, it's seen as keeping your family clean and safe. Uh, Dinah Craig's 1856 novel, John Halifax Gentleman, which was adapted for TV as late as the 1970s, is a really interesting example of how vaccination um, prosperity and social achievement are combined in the narrative. So if, if you want to move on towards a more prosperous, more stable, um, a more gentlemanly existence, then vaccination is part of the process. Okay, so, so this idea that vaccination is something which you do to protect your family uh, is very strong and moral fables, uh, and this is a fable, it's, it's a moral fable, it's a way of inculcating both good public health practice, vaccination, but also social responsibility within the novel. And Craig's novel is really interesting because it's not just about the impact of vaccination on you and your family. Um, John and, and his wife, Mary, have vaccinated all their own children, okay? Um, but they are then confronted with a neighbour who is anti-vax and who has not vaccinated her children and who turns up needing assistance with her sick little boy. Um, and smallpox is associated in many of the chronicles with extreme cruelty where people were simply left to die, okay? where, where people were so afraid of it uh, that they just ran and they closed their doors. But because the Halifaxes have vaccinated their own children, the initial response of Mary, which is my children, my children, where she, as a mother, even as a mother, she closed the door against the other woman, is overcome. And she and John talk and think, well, Mr. Jenner says our children, Dr. Jenner, he's described as, has assured us that in every case after vaccination, it has only been the slightest form of the complaint. So the vaccination enables them to be good neighbours, to be good members of society, but also to be Christian. And there's a very strong religious element in this. Uh, and I think Craig is very clever in this novel, because if some of the scruples about vaccination are about you know, running in the face of providence, she represents the Christian family as having an obligation to vaccinate so that they can do their Christian duty. It's, it's, it's quite subtle. Well, it's not really all that subtle. It's very moralistic, but it's, it's very effective. Um, and you have these scenes of melodrama of the mother looking for assistance for her child, potentially being turned away and then being told, no, no, come in, we, we, we will care for you. Okay, So it's a, it's a fascinating insight into the attitudes. 
1877, you can see this moving down through the classes. Um, it could fascinating Anglo-Irish novelist called Bertha Jane Adams, but she had numerous names. She married a lot. Uh, wrote a novel in 1877 called Winstow. Um, and in it, it's very much a story of uh, a clever boy getting ahead despite his disability. Again, an interesting novel. Um, but Mother Dutton, who has taken on the care of our, our hero, uh, is asked at one stage um, if the child has ever been baptised as a foundling. Um, and she's highly irate at this. I'm not one to neglect nothing, she says. I always had my children done for both worlds. There was every individual one vaccinated by the parish doctor and christened by the parish parson. I was brought up respectable myself and I brings them up the same. Okay. So Mother Dutton in this is, is, is a, again, a figure of Christian kindness and goodness, uh, but you know, literally that's her name, Mother Dutton. She's, she's a, this is good maternal practice. She's a good woman, a good mother. Uh, she also has great aspirations for the children in her care and is a great believer in what she calls edification. So vaccine is part of her duty of care, particularly to the disabled child in her care, that, that he's, she understands that he's vulnerable. Um, and it's also part of her sense of what a respectable woman would do. Now, we might not like the Victorian implications there that to be a respectable, good mother, you have to take the authoritative public health advice. Nonetheless, nonetheless, you can't argue with the fact that it becomes something which is normalised precisely because it is seen as something that the good parent and the good mother does. So in the 1850s, you see with Dickens, he is presenting this idea of an ignorant woman sacrificing her children on the altar of her own prejudices in relation to vaccination. By 30 years later, less than 30 years later, that figure has been replaced by this woman. Comical, not very well educated herself, but, but understanding for the good of the next generation that this is something which is her duty to do. So attitudes changed and they changed rather quickly. Uh, it seems to me. Now, one of the factors in this um, that is not talked about in relation to vaccines in the contemporary era, or rarely, is uh, compulsion. Because at various stages, there was a legal compulsion to vaccinate. And again, it was a bit like the public reactions. If an epidemic surged, then there was this reaction to legislate and then legislating to make it compulsory. Uh, and one of the things which is going on here is that the, that compulsion um, is being sweetened and softened and presented not in legal language, you'll be fined if you don't vaccinate your children, uh, but presented in these scenes of caring. Right? So it's complete opposite of that. This is a scene of the good mother minding her child, you know, the, this kind of nurturing, decent, gentle woman has the child vaccinated. So that softens the state compulsion for a vaccination. So I suppose what I am saying is that in the current context where there is a hesitation about vaccines on behalf of some people, once again, it's a minority and the more established the vaccine becomes, the smaller that minority becomes as well. That's the historical precedent. Um, but we perhaps look at the way in which using narratives 
of ordinary family life to present vaccination as something which is both normal and positive and part of that duty of care which we have to each other uh, and that we can draw on the way in which opinion leaders and popular fictions of one kind or another did that job in the 19th century. Brilliant, Geraldine. Thank you so much to think about there um, and plenty to, to pick up on in the discussion. That's just given me a huge big reading list now that I'm just <laughs> going to go off and follow. Um, so next up to follow that, we're going to have Harriet Wheelock um, to talk to us. Harriet is the Keeper of Collections in the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland with responsibility for the management and development of RCPI's Heritage Centre, which comprises the unique library, archive and historic items relating to the history of RCPI and the history of medicine in Ireland more broadly. In 2018, RCPI's Heritage Centre received full accreditation under the Museum Standards Programme for Ireland. Harriet holds an MA in Archives and Records Management from UCD and an article based on her MA thesis, Archives and Webs 2.0, The Postmodern Challenge, was published in the collection Archives and Archivists, Two Current Trends in New Voices in 2013. And Harriet has just begun a PhD in the School of Creative Arts in TU Dublin, looking at the history and development of RCPI's museum collection. So Harriet, over to you. I'm going to talk today about a bit about the history of vaccination and particularly um, specific, specifically in Ireland. And this research came out of um, the Mind Reading Conference, which we weren't able to hold last year um, because of the uh, COVID outbreak. And we were due to host an exhibition in the Dunleary Rathdown Lexicon Library, which was going to be all based around vaccination. Um, in the end, we put the exhibition online because we couldn't have the, um, the physical exhibition, but hopefully we will be able to do that in the future. And um, the exhibition is still available. I have to plug it. It's uh, if you can find a link on the Heritage Centre website. Um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the things I found out while I was researching for that exhibition and particularly how it links into some of the things that Geraldine has been talking about as well. So vaccination came quite quickly to Ireland. So Edward Jenner, um, who was one of the first to publish research um, into the smallpox vaccine, he published, well, he carried out the first inoculation in 1796 and published shortly afterwards. Um, and vaccination was current in Ireland within four years. So the first record of a smallpox vaccination was carried out, carried out by a surgeon, John Creighton, in the Foundling Hospital in Dublin, and he carried it out in 1800. Um, he was involved in opening a dispensary for the infant poor and vaccine inoculation in March of that year. And he'd vaccinated nine children within a year, including his own son. So similar to uh, Jenna, that quite often people who are being vaccinated early on are related to those who are carrying out the vaccination. Um, smallpox is a really big um, issue in Ireland in the 18th century. Gabriel Ashford, who's carried out research, um, has estimated that in the first half of the 18th century, about 20% of all deaths in Dublin were the result of smallpox, and one third of all children's deaths nationwide were from smallpox. And these rates were considerably higher than in other countries. So there was, you know, there was real potential for the for vaccination being introduced into Ireland to have quite a big impact. And from very early on, the state was involved in bringing vaccination to Ireland. So in April 1803, the Lord Lieutenant um, requested the presidents of the College of Physicians and the College of Surgeons in Ireland to consult on the best mode of propagating and preserving genuine cowpox matter in Dublin for transmission by post. Within eight months, the two colleges had come together and they founded the Cowpox Institution, which was based on North Cope Street in Dublin, and essentially it was a mail order service to get your vaccination. They ran clinics in Dublin two days a week, but then they also ran this postal order system where practitioners outside of Dublin could write to them and ask for vaccine to be sent to them so they could carry out inoculations themselves. So within three years of 
um, the Cowpox Institute being set up, nearly 3,000 inoculations had taken place within Dublin, and nearly 3,500 packets of vaccine had been distributed around the country. So from quite early on, there was state involvement and you know a fairly rapid involvement of practitioners. One of the earliest people um, to support the adoption of vaccination in Ireland was Dr. Samuel Labatt, who was a fellow of the College of Physicians, and he headed the Cowpox Institution for over 40 years. And he was really aware of the need to overcome what he described as a strong prejudice against vaccination. And he tirelessly campaigned for its adoption, both within the medical profession, but he also realised the importance of persuading key individuals and organisations to support vaccination. And as Geraldine mentioned, the Catholic Church came out in support of vaccination. That was partly to do with Samuel Labatt's campaign and talking to them and explaining to them why it was important. So the first um, vaccination legislation to be passed in Ireland was passed in the 1840s and responsibility for vaccination was placed on the poor law guardians. This was a bit of a problem, as Geraldine has mentioned. It linked vaccination with the social stigma around the workhouses, and this really impacted on uptake rates. People didn't want to go into the workhouse, they didn't want to go and get their vaccination, and you know there was a mistrust of government as well. Following the famine and the, the reform of the poor laws and the Medical Charities Acts that came after the famine, vaccination was moved from the workhouses to the new dispensary systems that had been set up across the country. And in addition, the responsibilities and incentives for the medical practitioners to carry out vaccinations were increased. So they were paid more per vaccine that they administered. And this resulted in an increase in the um, annual number of vaccinations taking place in Ireland, which had risen to nearly 100,000 by 1860. Um, although vaccination was being encouraged by the state, it wasn't made compulsory until 1863 in Ireland when an act was passed. And again, vaccinations rates increased by about a third, and it was estimated at this stage by nearly 85% uptake across the country by the end of the 1860s. Vaccination legislation was more successful in Ireland than in other parts of the United Kingdom. And it's not really quite clear why this is, but one of the suggestions that historians have made is that the legislation to introduce vaccination into Ireland to make it compulsory was introduced at the same time as the registration of births and the dispensary doctors were invited to also become the registrars for birth so essentially you went to one person to register the birth of your child and to get their vaccination done and it streamlined the process about there were 756 dispensary doctors in Ireland at the time and 700 of them agreed to also be the new registrars for births and as a result it made the process much easier you got the registration the vaccination both certificates issued at once and again, it led to a really big increase in the numbers taking up smallpox vaccination. So in the decade between 1870 and 1880, there were 7,550 deaths in Ireland that were attributed to smallpox. Between 1900 and 1910, the number of smallpox deaths in Ireland was just 65. So the introduction of vaccination had a huge impact on, on saving lives in Ireland. Um, vaccination faced opposition from the beginning. Um, and oppositions were strengthened with the introduction of compulsory vaccination. So in 1896, the National Anti-Vaccination League brought together several smaller groups into a centralised organisation and a sister organisation, the Irish Anti-Vaccination League, was founded in 1905. Um, opposition to vaccination was based on a couple of different arguments. Um, as Geraldine has talked about, there was a lot of fear and a lot of quite strong language used. Um, you know, they, there were the, we've got some of the... Uh, kind of campaign leaflets in the archive and you know they they've got some quite graphic pictures of babies who have been infected by the vaccination or claimed to be infected by this vaccination and um, there were claims that the vaccination was leading to the death of infants and that the medical profession was suppressing the cause of death when they registered the death because they didn't want to show that vaccinations weren't working 
Others opposed vaccination because it was compulsory and they felt that it removed free choice. Vaccination in Ireland was also quite localised, so different areas of the country were often identified as being areas of high um, vaccination defaulting, and Dublin and Wexford were two areas that were frequently identified as being areas where vaccine uptake was very low. So we have an example in the college archives um, from 1910, the, um, to the role that the college was taking in countering anti-vaccination sentiment, which is obviously still something the College of Physicians is doing today. So they addressed a statement and it was directed specifically to Enniscorthy Union, where there had been a recent rise in anti-vaccination sentiment. And the college expressed grave concern that the introduction into Ireland of the crusade against vaccination and the spread in certain districts of this country of the pernicious doctrines taught by the opponents of this beneficial practice. So there's some really quite strong language in the way they're, they're talking about this, you know, that vaccination is this crusade, it's saving lives and this pernicious doctrine that's attacking what they want to be presented as very beneficial practice. Um, the statement uses a combination of statistical and historical precedents to show the value of vaccination. And they conclude in talking about the, there's a lot of talk about the, the presenting evidence. They're trying to show that vaccination is, is, a, is a good thing and show that it has been successful. Um, and it ends up with the, the presidents and fellows of the college would urge the people of Ireland to cling to their faith in a preventative measure which has rid their native land from one of the most terrible plagues which has ever afflicted the human race. In Ireland, the anti-vaccination campaign also became linked into the struggle for Irish nationalism. Um, the, this was particularly intensified after conscientious objection exemption to vaccination was passed in England in 1898, but not extended to Ireland. Um, so a lot of people might not have been particularly that they disagreed with the science or the medicine behind vaccination, but they felt that people ought to have the right to choose whether they wanted to have vaccination. And the outbreak of the First World War saw increased enforcement of vaccination legislation because it was important to keep the troops healthy. And then this obviously led to increasing opposition from nationalists. Um, political independence didn't settle the issue and vaccination opposition continued in the 1920s. However, interestingly, in the 1928 uh, attempt to get a conscientious objection exemption passed in the Irish Parliament actually failed. Um, but the debates at the time again raised this perceived historical association between nationalism and the anti-vaccination movement. So I think there are some, I guess, lessons that can be seen in, as Geraldine was talking about, the kind of the past, looking at how vaccination and vaccination hesitancy has been dealt with in the past and, you know, the showing as as others will be talking about the importance of showing the science behind this, explaining the science in a way that people can understand, not talking down to people when, you know, they're explaining to them why, and then also targeting, as others talk, targeting the information at the groups where there is hesitancy or the groups where there is resistance. And, and I think that's, that's really important. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of the main things that I pulled out when I was doing the, it's been just nowhere near, this is, this is my specialist area as it is for other people, but hopefully this has been, uh, I guess, a useful contribution. Thanks a million, Harriet. That was so interesting. And I would certainly encourage anyone listening to go and check out the the online version of the exhibition. We were um, devastated having to call it off about three days before it was due to open. There is, I think, such a thing as being too timely uh, in one's research. <laughs> um, so certainly to, to have a look at the at the, the exhibition and we look forward to seeing it in the flesh, so to speak, um, before too long. So I'm going to hand over from Harriet now to Dr. David Grimes. Um, so David is a physicist, cancer researcher and author. His scientific work includes everything from how tumours use oxygen to why conspiracies tend to fail. Um, and he has a strong focus on public understanding of science and medicine. Um, you may be familiar with his work 
work from the BBC, from RTE, the New York Times, the Guardian, the Irish Times, PBS and other outlets. Uh, he is very prolific and received the 2014 Maddox Prize uh, and his first book, The Irrational Ape, While we, Why We Fall for Disinformation, Conspiracy Theory and Propaganda is out now from Simon & Schuster in the UK. So Dave, uh, I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you very much. I have to say everyone else has absolutely fascinated me and I can see the the research and the preparation that went into it. So expect the, the bar to drop dramatically here. But one of the things that really fascinated me there was how this this constant refrain is almost nothing new under the sun. So one of the things uh, in the very first talk, which I thought was really interesting, was that this uh, refrain in anti-vaccine literature to poison. Um, and then in Harriet's talk just after that, how one of the major arguments is about, oh, it's our right to choose. and the weighing up between the public good and individual good. And I suppose what's really interested me is how much has not changed since that propaganda of the uh, the 1800s, and indeed even since the, the time of Jenner. One of the things is um, we often find when we look at old, the 1905 Anti-Vaccine League was mentioned there, and some of the stuff that they use, the old snake and poison drawings, we still see in modern anti-vaccine uh, anti memes. I say modern in the in the loosest sense of the word as in they are contemporary, but the ideas they express are, are not new at all. So what I'd like to also talk about a little bit here is what has stayed the same and what, in, in my view, my very inexpert view, has changed uh, across that amount of time. So one of the things that really changed since the, the 19th century is quite how staggeringly fast the science has evolved. And I'm sure Don will get onto this a little bit and I won't uh, go too far onto it. But the level of progress we made in immunology in the early 20th century is very, very difficult to overstate. We went from a time where infant mortality was a real substantial problem, uh, where families expected to lose children, to the fact that that is almost a, a, a non event now. It, it, of course, it does happen, but nothing like in the scale it used to. And a huge amount of that is due to vaccination measures and things like that. So what we started seeing after the 1950s was a emergence or a resurgence or a kind of a dark renaissance of the anti-vaccine movement in more mainstream circles. And there's a few different theories as to why this is. Now, they'd always been bubbling away in the background, Estimates put them between five and 16% of the population, depending on where you look. It's very, um, it's not homogenous. It depends on the background of different people. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But one of the big factors that they thought maybe reduced, you know, public interest in vaccination was a little bit of complacency. From the 1950s onwards, you didn't really see people in iron lungs or whose bodies were twisted by polio and broken. You didn't see... Uh, your neighbor down the road whose child was deaf or had maybe lost their, their, their kids due to measles or things like that. In fact, the measles vaccine alone saves over a million lives a year in contemporary times. This is, you know, this, I, again, this is not something that people say of, of my generation or, or even a few generations above me have any memory of. It doesn't exist for them. So th there is a level of complacency. But we can't express everything we've seen in the past few years as a mere complacency problem. So in 2019, the World Health Organization declared vaccine hesitancy a top 10 threat to public health. And the reason they had to do that, it was not something they particularly wanted to do, was after a spate of massive measles outbreaks in particular. And one of the reasons it's often measles is that A, measles was 
almost virtually eradicated in places like the United States. Um, but it's incredibly infectious. The or not of measles, and we've all talked about or not with COVID, is between 12 and 18. So you're expecting each primary case to affect 12 to 18 other people. And you expect one in a thousand of those people roughly to die, sometimes more, depending on what group get it, and a lot more to get neurological or hearing impediments due to it, and the misery of getting measles as well. And suddenly, America, which had been declared vaccine or measles free in the year 2000, suddenly had massive outbreaks in New York and California, and oddly enough, a lot of very well to do places. Now, something that seems to be different to, in my mind to the 19th century when the Victorians were opining about the ignorant classes is that now vaccine hesitancy and particularly anti-vaccine activism is incredibly middle class. It is a staple of being very well off. Um, and one of the things we start seeing that in places like Uganda where people are queuing up to get vaccines, whereabouts you have places like California where people are trying to get vaccine mandates and religious exemptions from getting vaccinated in their schools based on their ideological grounds. And one of the things that we can look at, and there's a few things we need to break this down to, is why are people in the modern times, I mean, I can't speak to the, the, the 19th century, though I've been fascinated by everything I've heard. Uh, why, why now do people have this dislike of vaccine, vaccines? And I think the first thing we have to realize is that vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum. It's not a simple binary. We've talked about the extremes, the, the anti-vaxxers, and maybe you can talk some of the Victorian health bodies may have been the other extreme uh, with their kind of moralistic uh, framing of it, but it is not a binary. The vast majority of people don't necessarily have a strong opinion on vaccination, but they can be uh, engendered to have one. So one of the things that we see when we have vaccine confidence crisis, crises, plural, unfortunately, um, we've seen it with the MMR vaccine in the UK when the fraudulent and now ex-doctor Andrew Wakefield made false allegations that it was linked to autism, which it was not, of course, that drove vaccine uptake down markedly. We've seen it in Ireland and Colombia and Japan and Denmark with the HPV vaccine, where suddenly there has been tremendous fall. We'll talk a little bit about that in a while, I hope, and I think Donald will as well. I um, hope I'm not putting words in his mouth. But one of the issues is, and this can be extreme, by the way, in Japan, when before uh, the anti-vaccine propaganda hit, uptake of the HPV vaccine stood at about 70%. A year afterwards, it went down to 1%. Uh, this is like a staggering. Denmark went from 79% to 17. Ireland at its peak went from 86 to 51, 50. Um, we can talk about how Ireland turned that around in a, in a little bit as well, because I think that's very important on the medium of, of communication. But vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum. The vast majority of those parents who were not vaccinating their children weren't dyed in the wool anti-vaxxers. They are just simply afraid they don't know what to believe. And there's a whole lot of psychological factors that actually make the job of an anti-vaxxer, a dedicated down the wall one, much easier. And one of them is a thing called the availability heuristic, right? We are far more likely to remember negative or scary information about something and afford it far more weight than we are something that's neutral or even positive. Uh, so you always remember the, as, you know, the, the anecdote that you always remember the bad things, you never remember the good. That is very true with vaccination, particularly when the obvious benefits of vaccination are no longer as visible as they might have been for our parents and our parents' parents. Right? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've never seen an iron lung in my life, and I'm sure my dad might have seen a few. And if I went back to my grandfather's generation, there'd be a lot more. Um, so that kind of mental heuristic that we use to that shortcut that we associate, that's gone. 
and that you know is is no longer a thing. So we don't see the benefits, but we see all the scary information. And one of the things that you mentioned uh, in the in the 19th century was that it was often this, this messaging was targeted at mothers. And it's funny how things often don't change. We know that online anti-vaccine disinformation is most frequently targeted at parents and particularly new parents. Uh, they are, they've got a life in their hands. They've no idea what to do with it. They're terrified. They don't want to make any mistakes. And what anti-vaxxers are very good at doing for their ideological reasons that they're invested in this, we can talk about that in a second, um, they really just want to win the game by not getting you to vaccinate. And all they have to do to do that is make you scared and make you think that if something bad happens to your child, it's your fault. It's on you. I mean, all the things, particularly mothers and also fathers, really don't need that kind of pressure. And it becomes a devil you know thing. Well, it may be if it's a tiny effect of a side effect, I better avoid it. I better go with the devil I know. And in their head, that's safer. Of course, it's not safer. The balance of risk is always in favor of vaccination. That is why physicians and scientists always recommend it, because even it, it always is. But it's enough to give the perception with the thing called the availability heuristic. And when you go to think about something, you think about the scary thing. We saw that with the HPV vaccine in Ireland, when we talked to parents, they were like, oh, I read this thing on Facebook though, and it was very scary. And you were like, this prevents 5% of all cancers worldwide. This could make cervical cancer and penile cancer and anal cancer and a whole host of unpleasant things, a, a, an unpleasant memory. But people don't see that because they're not thinking of that. They're thinking about the scary Facebook post they read about someone in a wheelchair who may or may not have ever existed. And certainly it's not substantiated this thing ever happened to them. So in that way, the propaganda has not advanced at all. It has become more multi-channel. It has become, pop it into your phone at night. People don't have to do leaflets on anymore. They, they can target this. One thing I'd like to briefly point out is what makes someone a, I've talked about this spectrum, but let's go to the extreme end for a second because we did mention anti-vaxxers and we should, maybe look at what motivates this. Um, and it's interesting because it goes back to the repetition of myths. So when you have the dedicated anti-vaxxers of this world, the one who propagate this information, the one who scare people, um, the psychological traits that people have looked at inside these individuals, is absolutely fascinating. So what we tend to find is that they are motivated by a feeling of certainty, that they know something, that they have access to special knowledge that makes them superior to you. And superiority is an interesting term because uh, narcissism and egotism are massively correlated with people that spread conspiracy theories in general, by the way, and anti-vaccine propaganda, which is one of the oldest of the conspiracy theories that fits under that canon. Because to be an anti-vaxxer, you must, by default, be a conspiracy theorist because you have to take all this science and evidence and medicine and public health and put it in the bin and insist that you know more. So you are an obligate conspiracy theorist. So we do view anti-vaxxers as a subcategory of conspiracy theorists. So we see the same psychology in both, and that's not unusual. And the egotistical drive is phenomenal because it means that people can feel like they know more than anyone else, and they get a certain sense of satisfaction by propagating that. Uh, and I always find that's one of the strange ironies that a lot of people end up suffering at the whims of these people who are essentially doing this to, pl to placate their own ego. And that is incredible when you look at the public health damage it actually does. So I need to make the, uh, the clarification here that a lot of parents who don't vaccinate are not anti-vaxxers, but the victims of anti-vaxxers. Their choice not to vaccinate has been caused by that. 
And it is inter interesting if I could name some of the, the, the well-known anti-vaxxers, the, 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 uh, the Robert F. Kennedys of his world, whoever else, I'm sure we can't get sued for saying that. I'll try not to mention anyone who we can get sued for mentioning. But these people, they, will, they are resistant to correction. This is one of the really funny things about them because they will always consider themselves more correct than anyone else. Um, one of the most fascinating things is these narratives are often inconsistent. This gets back to the storytelling element. Conspiratorial narratives are often inconsistent. And one of my favorite experiments that was ever done on this was by Professor Karen Douglas over in the UK and her colleagues. And they took uh, narratives about Princess Diana, that two of them in particular, that she had been killed by the queen or that she had faked her own death. Conspiracy theorists could believe both of these at the same time. They had some kind of Schrodinger's princess where she was both alive and dead at the same time, as long as they believed that they knew more than everyone else about it. So you're going right back to egos, and you see this inconsistency with, with these kind of narratives. For example, COVID-19 is a hoax, but it's also a government plot, but it's, it's caused by 5G and it's cured by this thing that Donald Trump said to use. And you have to stop and go, these aren't consistent narratives. They don't care. Social media has made them multi-channel. They're not concerned about consistency. They're concerned about scaring people. Incidentally, um, what Professor Meany said at the very beginning was really interesting, uh, mentioning uh, the anti-Semitism of some of the early conspiracy theorists. We've actually seen that again. If you look at QAnon, who tend to be very anti-vaccine, uh, they are repeating blood libel stuff that was said about Jews in the first century and the 13th century. They are basically saying that blood drinking pedophiles control the world. And I, I find it fascinating that nothing changes. We're still using the same ancient myths. So the information deficit approach of trying to um, alleviate vaccine concerns in conversation is incredibly important to a degree. If you are dealing with a frightened parent who wants to know, who's heard this scared stuff and doesn't know what to believe, then talking to a physician or a scientist or anyone else and being gently communicated to, not admonished, not lectured, with a bit of empathy, talk through why these beliefs aren't true, that can be incredibly beneficial. But it's important to choose our battles. If you're trying to change the mind of anti-vaxxers, most of the research says you're wasting your time. And that's okay. We don't need them to join the club. We just need them to stop doing damage to the midsection. And I'll, I'll conclude by just mentioning how Ireland did um, reverse its, its, its HIV vaccine decline. We now in parts of Ireland have gone up above 90% of HIV vaccine uptake. And uh, where we have is very specific too. Um, Ireland had a unique situation and that immediately when this started, we had kind of known it was coming and there was a rapid reaction to it where physicians, scientists, public health bodies, parent groups got together and started producing reliable information to counter the anti-vaccine disinformation. And that was part of the puzzle that started to have a good effect within the first year. But I think, to my mind, and maybe others will um, have other opinions, but I, I really do think this is a massive factor. I think the biggest single factor was a human one. So um, there was a young lady called Laura Brennan who had been diagnosed with termin termin terminal cervical cancer. And she read about this vaccine and the disinformation about it. And she was so outraged that there was a vaccine that could save other women from going through what she was going through. And she, and this is so admirable to me, she contacted the HSE and said, hey, I got a story, I wanna tell it. And the HSE, I'm so glad they did this. They went, yeah, we wanna hear the story. And some of you will have been familiar with Laura's campaigning. She was the most articulate and charming and brilliant person. And she was a bulldog for the truth. She was the, she was the availability heuristic that we never saw. And one of her lines that she, she said, and I used to think was so powerful, was I am the reality of an unvaccinated girl. She made it clear to the general public that it wasn't about phantom side effects and scary things. 
this is what could happen if you didn't get vaccinated. Um, Laura was an incredible campaigner and someone I was very lucky to be close to, and I'm sure Donald would, would echo that as well. Um, and even when she was dying, and she, she passed away on the 20th of March, 2019, but even then she was still campaigning to her final weeks and she was telling the documentary crew working with her, make sure you put footage of my body in. And I even was saying to her, Laura, is that not a bit like, you know, and she's like, no, people have to see what this is. And it remains like, that was the strength of will. We were dealing with the force of nature when we talked about Laura Brennan and we can't expect that to be in every situation. But now Ireland's vaccine, HPV vaccine levels have recovered massively. When other countries are still in the doldrums, we've gone up. But I think that really showcases that if you want to change people's minds, you have to change their hearts. You have to show them the alternative. And I'm no expert in that at all, but it's something I, I really think that we should bear in mind. I've yapped at you enough and I will move on. But thank you for listening. I hope some of that was useful. Thanks, Dave. That was brilliant. Again, such such interesting food for thought. So much to think about in terms of the persistence of these of these forms of communication and the, the need for the need for evolution. So again, just loads that, that I want to pick up on in the discussion. But before we do that, um, I'm going to hand over for to our last uh, our last speaker, um, Donald Brennan. So uh, Donald Brennan is a clinician scientist uh, who graduated from from UCD School of Medicine in 2003 and was awarded a PhD in cancer biology also by UCD in 2008. His his main research interests are in biomarker development, tumour inflammation and obesity related carcinogenesis. He's received several awards for his research and was awarded Europe, European Young Researcher of the Year in 2010. 2012, he relocated to Brisbane to undertake subspecialist training in gynaecological oncology at the Queensland Centre for Gynaecological Cancer and completed a fellowship in general and colorectal surgery. He was visiting scientist at the QIMR Berghofer Research Institute, working closely with Professor Frank Gannon in the Control of Gene Expression Group and was appointed as UCD Professor of Gynaecological Oncology and Consultant Obstetrician and Gynaecological Oncologist at the Mater Misericordia University, National Maternity Hospital and St Vincent's University Hospital in May 2016. Since his return to Ireland, he's been actively involved in the promotion of the HPV vaccine and has appeared in multiple media outlets and addressed the Oireachtas Health Committee on the positive impact HPV vaccination can have in eliminating cervical cancer. So a very busy man. And we are delighted to have to have Donald talk to us from the, the, the medical front lines um, about about vaccination. So Donald, I'll hand over to you. Thanks, Claire. And um, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to kind of Get the opportunity to speak particularly at the end of this because i've learned more in the last hour i think than um i learned in a long time um and i came into this discussion really with a an open mind and i am a big believer as you know and how we can cross over between humanities and medicine and how we can try and learn from each other um because i think one of the big issues in medicine is that uh, whilst technology has moved quite quickly our ability to communicate that technology has really not and our ability in particular to use the correct language around medicine illness and disease is really not appropriate at times and often gets us into trouble as David and as David alluded to earlier but as Geraldine uh, spoke about we haven't learned from our mistakes and we're making the same mistakes again and again and again and I think that's probably one of the most worrying things I think it's interesting from a vaccination perspective to go all the way back to Jenner, as um, Harriet spoke about earlier. Um, and Jenner was an interesting character, mainly because he was um, he was a GP out in rural Gloucestershire. Um, uh, he wasn't sitting in a lab in uh, one of the big university centres. Um, and, you know, for those of you that are interested, he 
he inoculated his first patient in 1796 and he was relatively unknown at that point. And uh, uh, by 1807, he had become such an important person in the world that he was able to um, influence Napoleon during the war. And there was a famous story where he, he actually uh, generally petitioned Napoleon to release uh, two, two of his friends who were prisoners of war in France. And uh, I think Napoleon said something to, to the Lord, uh, to Lyon, that this man, uh, what this man asked is not to be refused. And I think it's a great example of how important his uh, work was. Uh, but I suppose one of the things about Jenner was he was, uh, he never really left his home and he, um, he didn't really travel on his fame. Uh, and he was very clear about the fact that he needed to explain vaccination to all those people who came to be vaccinated by him. Um, and it's interesting that maybe we've lost that a little bit over the years, uh, that uh, holistic approach to it. And, um, you know, Jenner was very clear about the fact that he wanted vaccination to be free at the point of delivery. He, um, he was also very clear that it had to be carefully explained by trusted and trained um, local healthcare workers. And I think that's important, that, that idea of how vaccination works in the community. And I'll come on to that in a few minutes again. And it would be available to everyone, and no matter who they were or where they were from. And of course, that is a big issue as we head into what is going to be the biggest vaccination um, drive internationally um, that we've ever seen uh, as a result of COVID. Um, and I suppose just to, I'm a, obviously very um, supportive of vaccination and understand the impact it's had on um, the uh, world historically. But obviously, we've come through a horrendously difficult year for many people. But I think it's very important that we highlight how positive the outcome is and how quickly science has moved to um, to develop COVID vaccines. In the, like this time last year, today is the 29th of January, if it was Friday the 28th, people were finishing work, they might have been ending up the dry January and heading to the pub. COVID wasn't a thing for them and how our lives have changed in that year. Um, but the work that has been done by science uh, across the world through collaboration, communication, and of course, most importantly, probably through appropriate financing has allowed us to develop this vaccine. And I was lucky enough to receive my second dose of the vaccine and I feel very privileged to, um, to uh, say that. And I, you know, I hope that over the next number of months, uh, as many people in Ireland as possible can receive that vaccine so we can go back to normality. Um, so I guess one of the things that I just wanted to touch on was the role of a particular HPV vaccination worldwide and what that is doing for um, uh, cervical cancer or HPV-related cancers in general. And as uh, David alluded to, we've had our own challenges here in Ireland, but um, really, I would argue that the single most important thing uh, that, we, uh, that happened in Ireland was, in fact, Laura Brennan, because... Um, uh, Laura's message was much stronger than any message that could be portrayed by any other um, uh, person um, who understands uh, cervical cancer because ultimately uh, it is the patient's lived experience which will have a much greater impact on um, people's opinion on whether things are safe or not as opposed to uh, what any expert or pseudo-expert will say. And I think that comes down to... Um, a talk that I heard Fergus Shanahan given mindfulness number mind games a number of years ago, where he talked about the difference between disease and illness. And medics understand disease very well, but most of us have no idea of illness. And it's really that's what we learn from our patients. And I often explain to our juniors that patients are our greatest asset. And unfortunately, in Ireland in particular, there has been, for various different reasons, a split in that doctor-patient relationship. And I think 
really that's something we need to heal. But with regards to um, HPV vaccination, I think there's a couple of interesting facts that are worth uh, talking about uh, from our from worldwide. And to put it in context, um, nearly 600,000 women a year get cervical cancer in the, the world um, and almost and over 300,000 die. And most of these are, uh, er, er, most of these women are between the ages of 40 and 60. Most of them are the main uh, carers for their children. Uh, and possibly have huge imp that impact on society is completely underestimated. Um, uh, and really, as a result of our very clear understanding that HPV causes cervical cancer, we can now vaccinate against HPV infection and therefore prevent cervical cancer. And it's interesting to see that the great, the best uh, HPV vaccination program in the world is not in Australia, as we often hear. It's not in Scotland. It's actually in Rwanda, where we now have a 98% uptake rate of vaccination in a country that's post-genocide, post-conflict, um, extremely low income. And it's very interesting. People want to read up on why that's the case, but it's a multifactorial thing. But it's led from the top by political leadership. It's, but most importantly, coming back to my point earlier, it's also dwells right down to the very small areas of community and how community leaders promote uh, vaccination and promote health and well-being actually as more importantly because it's not just HPV vaccination that's that high. It's all childhood, childhood immunization. Childhood immunization is up to about 98% across the whole of Rwanda. Um, likewise, uh, I was interested to hear Geraldine talk about Scotland and Scotland has an exceptional um, vaccination program and has seen and, um, you know, an 89% reduction in the incidence of precancerous lesions in girls who were vaccinated 20 years ago, um, which is the clear, our clear understanding that this works. Um, so how come if we have this intervention that hasn't been ex universally accepted? And as David alluded to earlier, there are many countries where there are very low levels of vaccination. And Japan is a very good example where it's down to about less than 1%. And I think the three things that we see about vaccination are the message, who gives the message, and then how do we actually address people's worries? Um, and the two things around the message, as uh, Geraldine spoke to earlier, are recurring again and again and again, horror, uh, scare, worry, anxiety, and pollution, uh, that we are going to pollute somebody's body with these foreign um, uh, materials. And really, to me, that's a failure of medical communication. Um, and it's a failure to kind of understand people's, uh, I suppose, anxieties and worries, which are often legitimate. Um, and what we do know is that the single greatest uh, impact on vaccination rates is provider recommendation. And what I mean by provider recommendation is that a medical professional recommends to a patient or oftentimes a friend that they will um, have that they should have a vaccination. And it's interesting, there's a very interesting study from the US of um, uh, childhood cancer survivors. So these are a group of people who would have regular uh, interactions with uh, healthcare providers. Uh, but interestingly, only about 70% of them were, uh, ha were recommended to have HPV vaccination by their, um, uh, by their provider. And of those who were recommended, the vaccination rate was exceptionally high, but in the 30% in whom the provider didn't sit down and explain to them that they should have this vaccine, the vaccination rate was exceptionally low. And I think it just highlights the fact that, you know, as healthcare professionals in particular, we always need to be on guard for that whole um, 
uh, that for that message. And I often say that I do more work uh, promoting vaccinations at the side of the football pitch and the side of the hockey pitch on a Saturday and Sunday morning where people kind of walk up beside and say, what do you think of this vaccine than I'll ever do anywhere else? Um, and I often kind of preach that message. Um, the second issue that is, I think, very important, and this is something that maybe we can come back to in the discussion, that we learned, particularly in HPV vaccination, was the dangers of introducing um, gender-specific vaccination. Because I think this is a very, this was an area that was, it was a decision that was made based on cost. And as you know, we've now moved towards gender-neutral vaccination. But any suggestion that you would vaccinate one gender and not the other um, is, is always going to open yourself up to significant uh, criticism. And it will bring around a certain amount of um, uh, worry around particularly fertility when you start to vaccinate um, uh, young girls. And it's interesting that it kind of falls in with this whole idea of uh, the fact that HPV vaccination is associated with promiscuity. And this is a big problem all over the world. And I'm sure Geraldine might be able to uh, talk to us later on about how that may, uh, it may be seen uh, historically. But what the, people, what the authorities in Rwanda were very good about was that they spoke about this as a, a, as a vaccine that could prevent cancer. And they didn't speak really about HPV. And that was how they started to develop that momentum. But for example, India, which has a huge burden of cervical cancer, has had very poor uh, ability to, uh, to develop a HPV vaccination program, uh, mainly around this idea of promiscuity. And this kind of brings me on to my kind of final point, which is that we really need to fix this because I'm 100% sure that there's an enormous stigma attached to uh, cervical cancer and that even in Ireland, where we've made so many strides over the last five to 10 years and becoming a more inclusive, um, respectful society, um, women do feel that they have contributed to uh, their getting cervical cancer. And they're also stigmatized uh, in their communities, um, uh, particularly uh, maybe in smaller communities. Uh, when the, and they're very slow sometimes to discuss their, um, their diagnosis. Uh, and this is something, and they also universally almost um, discuss a feeling of guilt um, and, and why they got the and why they got this sexually transmitted infection, which went on to cause their cervical cancer, which we know, of course, is completely um, non-scientific. So I think one of the things and one of the challenges that we maybe face into now uh, as we go towards COVID um, vaccination in particular is how do we address. Uh, all of these issues, particularly around vaccination of women in pregnancy, vaccination of women uh, who, are, who are breastfeeding. And of course, all of these uh, debates that are going on around whether people should um, consider postponing trying to have a family until they're vaccinated, all of which, of course, we have no information to, to, um, to uh, kind of back up any of the claims that are made, whether they're pro or against vaccination. Uh, but ultimately, and maybe I'm a little bit biased in this and that I spend my life uh, caring for women at, a, at an international level, if we do not gain the trust of women in, in vaccination and mothers in vaccination, we will run into huge problems because ultimately, whether you like it or not, it is the mothers of the world who bring their children for vaccination. Um, and as uh, Kofi Annan said many times, you know, empower women and you'll fix the world. And I think that's very important that we actually address that and that we don't allow people stick to old-fashioned agendas about excluding pregnant women or breastfeeding women from ongoing trials. 
because that's only going to re, re in my opinion that's going to actually reinvigorate all of these arguments that David has spoken about earlier um, so on that note I'll let you back to maybe discussing the more interesting side of these uh, topics that I think uh, Geraldine and David and uh, Harry can bring up because really at a clinical level we have a lot to learn um, from you guys and how we actually I suppose we have to be so much so careful with our language in particular and particularly over the next number of weeks and months. Thanks so much, Donal. And I have to say my very favourite thing about mind reading is how every single person on every panel thinks that everybody else's contribution is the most interesting one. I just I love seeing that um, that exchange and the kind of the, the, the way in which people just wholeheartedly jump into the, the kind of interdisciplinary conversations. And I think you're absolutely right. So um, I think there's, there is so much to discuss around the care of, around language and communication. And I mean, um, one of the things I'm, I'm really struck by is this idea that the, the language of resistance hasn't changed, but of course, none of the narratives have changed. They're exactly the same, the, the kind of the freedom, the pollution, the purity, whereas the science is, is rapidly advancing and is so much more nuanced and complex. And so the communication around the science does have to evolve, whereas the communication around the resistance maybe maybe doesn't need to evolve in the same way. And I'm, I'm struck, we were talking about ancient myths. I'm struck by Pandora's box, that it was um, Apate, the, the goddess of deceit, who was the first to escape from Pandora's box. Like, there really is nothing new under the sun in, in a sense. So I'm going to open the discussion back up. And joining us now also is, uh, is Elizabeth Barrett, um, who's an associate professor at UCD in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. So she's going to she's going to step in as well. Um, I suppose the first question that I have, I was struck by everybody's comment, everybody individually commented on the importance of the local, right, and the, the, the importance of the immediate community. Um, and I wonder, would it be fair to say that that's where the power lies in this, in, in, in rollout and delivery and communication, that really for all COVID is a global problem, these vaccination policies, these vaccination deliveries, all of the science is responding to global problems. And that's been the case all along, but that in the end, where it counts and where it emerges is is in the kind of local community. And I just wondered if perhaps um, we could talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to invite you to kick your mics on. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Claire. Um, and, you know, that's going to be a big issue as we roll out vaccination. Um, uh, uh, and I suppose, uh, particularly on an Irish perspective, the, uh, the biggest uh, community organisation we have is the GAA. And um, it is likely that they will have a big impact on how we actually deliver vaccination if we go down the route of vaccinating in um, different uh, centres and things like that. But also, I think, um, you know, it's almost down to the micro of where people, the impact that the local nurse and the local doctor will have uh, around uh, communities. Um, and that maybe has been diluted as the local GP has been busier and it maybe isn't the same, doesn't have the same open door policy that they had 20 years ago when they were um, on call 24 seven and maybe delivered babies and uh, did everything else. So uh, that is something that I think has, that community, has diminished a little bit. Uh, and that's something that we maybe will find difficult to overcome because particularly in rural Ireland, a lot of these communities have become you know, quite small and uh, people live apart. And of course, 
have become fair, have become more distant over the last year as well, which is a big yeah. issue. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, social distancing plays into the, the those community ties um, in ways that maybe we we can't yet predict. I think that's a, a really interesting point. I didn't realize that Jenner was a community physician, um, and that's I just I think that that's such an interesting adds such an interesting layer. Knowing the people that he was working with and them knowing him, I think is is such a such a vital such a vital component. So interesting. And we, we, we kind of have have heard about this idea that things continue to stay the same and that and everybody has mentioned that there are lessons to be to be learned. Um, are there lessons to be learned as well as as well as about communication, which I think we can we can all agree on? Are there lessons to be learned about delivery? I was struck by what both Harriet and Dave said about the the availability of the, the co-location, so to speak, of birth registries. Harriet, you were talking about, um, and Dave, you were talking about the kind of the availability that you that it 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 needs to be immediate and accessible. And Donald, when you were talking about Jenner's campaign to have free at the point of delivery and and universally accessible I mean, these are conversations that we're still having so are there perhaps lessons that we can learn from from earlier pandemics and earlier vaccination um strategies in terms of delivery do you think i uh, yeah i like i was really struck both like the idea of bringing the two pieces of legislation i mean obviously for covid it's different but bringing in the, the two registrations together and getting the same person to do it and going okay so we need the doctor's expertise to do the inoculation but they they can also register the birth and also the high level of uptake that you know 700 of 760 doctors agreed to do it so yeah. you know they obviously they were being paid for it so there was an additional <laughs> thing for them but you know it, it's a it's a really sensible way of rolling it out and then again like the idea that in like the 18 whatever not you know 1820s you could have your vaccine sent by post i, love I just thought this was such a great idea <laughs> we have the registers in the archive and they list you know all the places that essentially the doctor could write in and say can you send me 20 packets of vaccine in the post and they would send it back to them and the post service was really quick it was you know it was there and back in a couple of days and i that such a sensible way to deal with when transport in the country you know Absolutely. wasn't great just you know really clever use of of resources yeah so the infrastructure that that yeah that was available you have that's right. just i was fascinating i was really struck by that dave did you want to come in there i just think can you imagine people trying to post to freezers that go to minus 80 degrees <laughs> well yeah at yes. the moment but <laughs> but what is fascinating is it also shows how much vaccine technology ha has moved on as well the early vaccines were basically the live attenuated virus uh, and now we're looking at um m rna kind of it, it's incredible the, the leaps that have been made I guess it goes back to the fact that we're still competing with the same myths that were coming out in the 1800s. I wonder when you talked about locality, though, is is the method of delivery sufficiently different now? Is the fact that we get 69 percent of people um, who are under the age of 40 get their news from social media? Mm. Is that a bigger factor in how we understand things and in how it's been weaponized? We've seen it in disinformation, whether it's political propaganda or anti-vaccine stuff. And I wonder like, the 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 people of the historical insight maybe think that they probably you you, you folks probably have better insight into how people navigate that maze or if there's anything historically equivalent to it but it certainly feels new to me now but maybe it isn't that new i think that one of the things which evolves is, is media um, and every time that media evolves it causes problems um if you think of radio fascism you know um television the cold war there there, there are levels of paranoia which as new media come on in play, that seems to be the paranoid register seems to come into its own. 
and then things settle down after a while. Um, but of course, with contemporary social media, that is dialed up to a degree that haven't had in the past. Um, and the rapidity with which misinformation can be disseminated is obviously something which is completely different. Now, having said that, one of the main kind of conduits for misinformation in the 19th century were local preachers. So that's something very immediate. You know, the community thing can work both ways. Yeah. Uh, and I was really thinking about this when David was talking about uh, power and egos and narcissism, that these people are really they're really getting off on the fact that they can control their flock to that extent. Right? Mm-hmm. Not just preachers, politicians do it as well. It's, you know, anybody who wants power, misinformation is actually quite a good way to accumulate power to yourself mm. uh, and put yourself in this position of the one who knows uh, and who's saving your flock, your constitu- constituents, whatever it is, from um, the deep state, you know, the the main authorities um it, it's this i was fascinated with this thing of the the nationalist kind yeah. of inflection to anti-vaccination sentiment uh which connected with something that donald said about any connection to um sexual transmission of disease mm-hmm. uh, and the way that women tend to get scapegoated for that i mean if you read 19th century sources uh only women are referenced as the ones who pass on syphilis or predominantly women. Uh, and, and they're not explicit about it, but it's there. Uh, one of the switch points in Irish nationalism is that they blame the British uh, troops in Ireland. Right? So women are the, are the default scapegoat. But if you want mm-hmm. to make a nationalist point, you blame diseases on the, the foreign body that you have the most yeah. issue. Uh, arguably, one of the reasons why the Irish state panicked so much around sexuality in the 20s and 30s was the thought if they got rid of the British army, they would get rid of prostitution, they would get rid of illegitimacy, you know, because it must have been those guys, right? So it's always the outsider. It's always the outsider. Um, and that clicks back in with the scapegoating, the blood libel and uh, anti-Semitism, which is the ultimate scapegoating. Like that's the millennial deep one. Uh, yeah. And really interesting the way those narratives keep coming back up. Um, and and it, you can't really, I, I think it's not just the leaders. It's quite difficult to reason people out of some of these ideas because to reason them out of that they have to actually recognise what they are. Yeah. You know, so they have to recognise their own fear. They have to recognise their own irrationality. Mm. Uh, and again, this ego uh, element in that, that, that yeah. people sense of themselves is very heavily invested in yeah. their idea that no I wasn't persuaded by anybody no not at all it wasn't that woman who came up to me at the hockey match or the thing that I saw on Facebook I mean if people admit it was something they saw on Facebook you couldn't say no that's why that's wrong yeah. uh, but oftentimes people won't um, and, and I I do think that there is a danger that we just go after Instagram misinformation mm. By going on to Instagram, because I think that's a problem. I think that is a problem. Um, and and I I think one of the elements, but one of the elements that we might learn from the past is that the regulation of various media uh, and, and the linking of various media to ideas of you, you can't tell lies, you can't insult, uh, you know, whole other ethnic groups, whatever, but also that a, a linkage with ideas of rights. People have a right to correct information. They have a right to privacy and so on. That works much better Mm. um, 
you know, I think then, then, and then because you can see there is an effectiveness. I mean, the Dickens thing where you create even more violent, um, repugnant language associated with the anti-vaxxers than the anti-vaxxers associate with the vaccination program. To some extent, that works. <laughs> I think it's a really good point. And I would say, you see, I never realized how aggressive Dickens was about that. And then I realized, well, actually, what he wrote about his ex-wife. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't surprise me. <laughs> but, um, but one, one of the things that, that, that you, you mentioned there, I think it's absolutely true, is reframing as rights, like reframing it as a positive, because I, mm. I find that even when people go, oh, uh, David's going to come on and debunk something, I always feel that's already a negative slanting, because I'm not hitting here to rain in your parade and call you an idiot. I don't think that's going to achieve anything. What I mean, and I guess where I wrote the book, the first thing is, I think the most powerful thing we can do to empower people full stop is to encourage critical thinking. Mm. And one of the big things, um, I, was, I was writing for Embo Reports about this recently, one of the big things that we could learn from this pandemic and maybe take from this vaccination thing is the concept of information hygiene. We've all got used to physical hygiene. We wash our hands and we distance ourselves from people a little bit to make sure we don't spread an infection or catch it. I think we have to learn to treat information in a similar way, as in this is pat like they call propaganda is, is correctly called viral disinformation. And the viral part of that is very resonant. I think we have to realize that we're, our minds are easily infected. There's no shame in us being wrong, which is very hard for us to get our heads around because we have this thing it called, I, I think Daniel Cannon calls it identity protective cognition. We think that we are our ideas. And that's why if someone insults your idea, you get all offended and go, how dare you? Actually, it's just your idea, who cares? But we do care yeah. because we're humans. Um, but I think we have to get more ironically promiscuous with our ideas and willing to trade them out when they're you know, out of date. Um, but one of the way we encourage people to do that is say, look, this is really empowering. If you get a bit of information and you treat it cautiously and people the stick and only accept it or share it mm. when you know it's legitimate you're actually empowered you're not um it doesn't weaken you it makes you stronger and it makes your life a bit better and i, I know that it, it sounds like it should be an easy sell but at the moment it's not but i loved your idea of framing things as 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 a net positive and i yeah. really wish we could do that <laughs> I'm struck as well by the by what you said, Geraldine, about about the idea of framing this on in a in a rights based framework, which given again something that was mentioned several times was the kind of the language of personal responsibility that persists around this kind of um you, you know when you when you were talking about um the the targeting of, of young parents, particularly new parents, um that you know there is it, it's your fault if your child gets sick or your child dies. So there that language of responsibility and I've noticed it as well with COVID, it's do you want to infect your granny? You know, and and there is this this kind of that language of of individual rather than systemic responsibility, which is perhaps problematic in its own way. But if we have the language of responsibility, then perhaps the language of rights um, is, is a way of, of balancing that. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to pick up on as well was the, the, that affectiveness um, that we're talking about, that, that, that kind of keeps coming up and the, the, the sort of the, the, the horror, the language of horror and the, the purity and, and these kinds of very visceral um, terms that come up um, and the, the, the moral language that you were you were talking about, Geraldine, that, that Dickens, and I'm going to call it moral language rather than just out and out hostility, um, that, that that Dickens and, and his and his his cohort employed. But I wonder 
what it seems to me is the most kind of the closest thing um, more in more contemporary um, discourses is someone like Laura, um, Dave and, and Donald, who you mentioned, because so much of, of her story had that affective weight, you know, had that kind of real emotive and visceral resonance. Um, so is it something, you know, sh should we should we be should we be seeking more um, more local, more patient advocates? Is that, you know, don't like struck by your your estimation that it's a failure of medical communication. But I feel like doctors are pretty busy. You know, you guys have a lot to do. So mm -hmm. what's what's maybe what's maybe worth talking about is where not only where is the responsibility for this communication, but where is the power to, to communicate in that? We know that affective language works in both directions. So if we could if we could empower one cohort of people in this form of communication, who would it be? What would who who's who's the who's the weapon here? Do you think? Um. So I think that uh, one of the things that I kind of figured about this is that uh, we have to be very careful about this idea that people do not understand. Um, yeah. And people do understand. And I actually feel that we as scientists and academics can be quite, we're very good at talking down to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I've started to kind of develop this idea that it's not really ignorance, it's a lack of acceptance. People yeah. understand um, very difficult concepts, but they may not accept them. And I think there are two, and as, as we continue to uh, use this idea that uh, they, the lack of understanding of any sort of medical technology, we just drive this wedge that yeah. annoys people. Um, and I think that's where the patient story comes very important because mo I have yet to meet a patient who will preach to a room um, they will tell their story using yeah. language that's appropriate. Um, they will have their emotional um, intelligence is often far greater because of their own um, lived experience than anything that we can kind of kind of try to replicate. Uh, so I absolutely couldn't think of it a more important group than patients who are recovering um, from any condition that you could vaccinate against as being the best advocates for um, the uh, for uh, any rollout of any vaccine or any other health innovation. Um, because ultimately, they are the people that um, your constituency will uh, resonate with. Now, but the other big issue I think that comes in here, uh, and maybe it's for another discussion, is around leadership. Sure. Um, because I think, mm. Uh, and maybe Geraldine can touch on this in a few minutes, that uh, political leadership is hugely important here. And it, it's, it's so obvious as we see the differences around the world uh, in countries that have yeah. coped well and have not coped well and how that has had an impact. And, you know, not to be too politically incorrect, but I find it really galling that even in our own country, some of the politicians who were very much um, against the anti or against the HPV vaccination and now the ones crying out mm. about the rollout of the COVID vaccine program, which in fact is a huge undertaking, the biggest undertaking our health service has ever uh, tried to do. And, um, and we're not doing a bad job at it considering yeah. the way we start, had to start out. So I think um, I actually feel that a lot of the public 
anger sometimes that comes with problems that happen with healthcare are exacerbated. And oftentimes, um, the, 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 a stoked, this fury is stoked in Ireland in particular by, a, by an irrational political reaction. Uh, yeah. And this comes down to uh, local politics in a small country. And as long as we remain in this parochial system where the local politician has to jump up and down and shout for his or her local services, mm-hmm. whatever they may be, uh, we are going to be in trouble because that generates that narrative. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's a historical thing. And maybe in countries where there's a more federal system where the local politics is managed locally and federal system kind of can deal with the bigger issues that you don't see that. But in Ireland in particular, I think that's a huge issue. Yeah, I think that speaks very much to to both something that Harriet raised and something that, that Geraldine raised, that these are not, and, and that you, you've said yourself, it's not necessarily an issue of understanding. It's not necessarily even an issue of education. There are so many different systems at play here. So you've got political ideologies inflecting responses to illness and inflecting responses to, to health services. Um, you've got that that's the sort of ideas of freedom that are are perhaps unrelated to belief in science or otherwise. Um, and, and as Geraldine pointed out, that the solution is not um, is not just changing the information, it's tackling it's tackling all of these huge interrelated issues, um, which I think is 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 really important. And so, Donald, your your point about the sort of twin necessity of local communication and political leadership, I think, is a, is a really really significant one. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a, a really important one. Um, the other element that I was really struck by is the the role again of 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 kind of of families and of parents and mothers in particular, which you, you all commented on. And I think that there's an awful lot at play there. There is um, the sort of the gendering of care is something that I'm I'm really interested in um, and that I think I would love to hear a little bit more about. But I'm also struck in just in in, in since we're talking about the, the rollout of the COVID vaccine, how different is that when we're talking about vaccination that's going to be administered to majority adults? If we're not, I mean, we we are we are also talking about families, you know, families bringing their children for vaccination. Ultimately, I hope, um, speaking as a parent to small children, um, but but if we're talking about vaccinations that are administered in the in the majority of cases to individual adults, does that conversation change? And is there any, um, is there any history of that? I mean, are, are there were there were there? I'm I'm not familiar with kind of vaccine rollouts to adults in history. And I wonder if anyone has any commentary on that. I would think that this is going to be one of the ones where the issue of trust in institutions, to go yeah. back to Donald's point, is a really crucial one. And I, I think we have to be realistic in Ireland that a very large proportion of the population distrust our institutions yeah. and, and for good reason. I mean, you know, really? the, you, this is all going on and the mother and baby homes report yeah. comes out and is completely mishandled. And um, also you have, you know, for many people, when you say cervical cancer, the, the, the hesitation that people yeah. have for the screening program is because they don't trust it because they feel it was messed up before. So I think it's not just local politicians or opposition politicians trying to score points. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the idea of a government acting in the best interests of the general public and being trustworthy. Um, I think it's going to be a huge public health issue to displace the public relationship with the government 
from the public relationship with the vaccination program yeah. and i think that's why a lot of people uh, kind of you know anecdotally you hear people say no i'm not listening to those politicians yeah and they're waiting for the doctors yeah. to talk yeah which is a lot as you said the doctors have a lot to do yeah. <laughs> so there's that I feel like there is that <laughs> but i i do think that, that you know the medical profession the individual doctors actually people have a lot of yeah a lot of faith trust in in ireland i think that is a, is historically that that's been the case but i think that's still there for yeah. a lot of people and um, it helps if you've got a long-term relationship with one gp which in urban areas uh, busy practices a lot of times people don't so that's going to be a factor but i, I think it'd be really important to disconnect this from people's relationship and, and it is you're in the, in the realm of affect how people feel Absolutely. about yeah. the government you know? Yeah, I kept in, in my notes, I kept writing down affective, affective, affective. <laughs> so very much so. So capturing the, that affective response and that idea of of trust, I think, is is vital. I mean, Donald mentioned the GAA, which I think is a really interesting, um, you know, that's that is a, a kind of a, 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 a local system that is also that is also uh, operates at a national level and in which there is generally a high degree of, of trust. And it seems to me from from all of the, 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 the conversations that those are the kinds of um powerful networks community pharmacists are another that that struck me that we haven't mentioned yet um who you know who operate very much locally and who you know in in whom in general there's a kind of a high degree of relationship a high degree of reciprocity of relationship um at least so it's just it's 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 so interesting because you sort of think vaccine hesitancy is something that we can fix with education but really there's so much more going on um so much more going on there and it's it's just such a it's such an interesting kind of tangle of issues and it really does lay bare i suppose the functioning of of, of different societies as you said donald there are countries that have managed this well and countries that have so far not managed it very well and i think there will be a long time will be a long time unpacking those early responses and what generated them well, claire can i just come in there and just something jardine said which is interesting and i I think it is something we need to this lack of trust in Ireland in um, and where does that come from? And it, like the mother and baby home is a great example of that. But our much maligned HSE has performed significantly better than the often, um, you know, than the great national pride that is the NHS um, in the UK in the last year um, with regards to how we've managed COVID um, mm. in particular. Um, and, you know, today, here in the matter, we are doing major complex cancer surgery with the ICU full, which isn't happening in the UK. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's uh, there is an issue there that's worth exploring. And we, one of the big re reasons that you don't find um, medics standing up is not because they're too busy or too, um, uh, or that they're afraid to do so. It's that we live in a very uh, litigious culture. And um, the medical legal culture in Ireland in particular is, um, you know, profoundly more aggressive than um, anywhere else in the world, apart from the US, to be honest. And one of the reasons you find a very, you find a lot of doctors are unwilling to stand up is because they do feel that they will open themselves up, not maybe based on what they do, but if they have any sort of a profile, if something yeah. goes wrong, mm. then they will be um, open to, to, to uh, litigation. And that is really, you know, one of the things that in Ireland, and that comes back to my idea of acceptance versus ignorance. We have to figure out as a society how we accept um, risk and benefit. Uh, and vaccination is a good example of that. 
Uh, and ultimately, if we look at all of these things, that, um, uh, th these failures that have happened, uh, most of them come down to, again, my point about cover-ups or lack of communication. So if we can start to develop this open, integrated um, conversation with people, I think at an early stage, we can overcome those. Uh, but if we don't do that, we're going to run into serious trouble because ultimately we have to be very clear with, with everybody in Ireland that we're all part of a huge experiment right now. This is the world's biggest ever clinical trial. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And if somebody says to me tomorrow, well, is the COVID vaccine safe? I can tell you, well, it's safe for two months, or two to three months. That's the data we have. And anybody that says anything else uh, that promotes the vaccine, in my opinion, is just is doing just as big a disservice as somebody who is um, anti-vax. Yeah. Uh, and, and oftentimes... Uh, we have to be very careful with that. And one of the things that's come out in COVID is, as we've seen from the president of the US downwards, that people have jumped on the train and promoted really um, dangerous treatments without any evidence. Yeah. Um, and there's been plenty of medics who've done that too. Yeah. I think, you know, we have an opportunity here, I would say, to maybe rebuild that trust yeah. and to use this national experiment, which it is. But we have to be honest with people, and I'm not sure we have been to date. I think, I think that's a, yeah go ahead Dick. sorry you, uh, you go ahead I'll, I'll jump in after <laughs> I was actually going to come back to something that you'd said just just picking up on, on what Donal has said that, that that I think framing it as an opportunity is a really important thing because as you say you know the the, the HSE much and all as it's as it's maligned um has has performed under extraordinary stress as it as it ever does um and actually and this goes back to both what what David and what Geraldine were talking about the fact of it doesn't matter really in 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 perception that we that we 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 remember or notice the negatives that the negatives are more affectively persuasive they're more, they have more heft and that's what what dave what you were talking about um in terms of kind of we we remember the bad stuff rather than the good and that that that's maybe something that needs it doesn't matter how many times you say but actually here's the evidence that yeah. you know this has worked well um and i so i so dave actually that's just a it's really just a segue to you <laughs> well, it's interesting i think what donald was referring to there and i i, I hate when scientists and doctors do this is what i call the noble lie when they speak with a confidence about something they cannot possibly because i think they're underestimating the intelligence of the public and i think also they're setting themselves up for a fall and there's certain scientists that do this all the time i'm going to pick on my own profession a little bit and i'll hear them on the radio saying something and i will be screaming blue murder at the radio going when people find out that that's not true or you're overstating the confidence of that finding what you're doing is damaging public trust in all of us because eventually they go oh they're all a bunch of liars or they're all idiots one of the things that you mentioned earlier on was about like do we need more patient involvement and absolutely yes but i also think we gotta go back to laura for this as as, as a model one of the things that you really need is narratives in sympathy uh, in, in symphony Right. Yeah. You need the so what Laura was amazing at doing, and she would kill me if I told you this, but Laura was one of the most studious people you could ever meet. Right. And if you said that to her, she, she'd murder you. Right. But Laura <laughs> knew her stuff inside out. She would not make a statement in public that she hadn't checked with someone like Donald mm. or someone from the, the, the HSE or or even she'd occasionally ring me and go, I'm going to say that statistic. Is that correct? Yeah. And she was incredibly studious about how she did it, even if she didn't like me using that term uh, to her. You know, she was she never spoke off the cuff when a patient does that, when they give their personal perspective and they are working with the medical and scientific community. That is so powerful. It can go the other way, too. 
Um, the word patient, advocate, the term patient advocate is very um, nebulous. And we've seen particularly with litigation over, say, cervical check, the media will say this is a patient advocate. And that patient advocate might be saying something that's very much at odds with what the scientific or medical community are saying. And then the, the water gets muddied. So I think these things work really well when they're in symphony. Yeah. I think that when they're opposed to each other, they leave everyone going, I don't know what to believe and I don't trust any of that. So again, it's kind of like tuning your instruments. You all have to be playing the same tune. And when you do that, it can be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it just it, as a blunt instrument, I think we have to be just cautious. Yeah. And also the responsibility it puts on patients. Laura was one in a million. You don't get people like her very often. Okay. Um, but it, I wouldn't ask that of all patients by any mean stretch. It's, it's a big ask, you know? No, I think that's I think that's a really important point, and that idea of of kind of symphony and and keeping things grounded in um, in in reality, so to speak, is 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 really key. Um, and it's I suppose the question is how do you capture how do you simultaneously manage that and capture that narrative of power um, that we that we that we saw with Laura and that Geraldine drew attention to throughout the, the kind of the nineteenth and, and early twentieth. I, I, I think on that note, every patient doesn't have to be a Yes, of course. Yeah. Let me sign up for treatment, by the way. <laughs> but even just having patients involved in service development, and yeah. uh, I'll, I'll give you a good example. We did a big reconfiguration of our um, uh, services, and we we brought patients in, and we asked them, what's the most stressful period for you coming into the hospital? And they said the most stressful period was when they were coming in for their return visit, and maybe they were waiting on a scan result, and they were sitting in a room, with maybe 20, 30, 40 people waiting to be called, and they might be waiting an hour, an hour and a half. And I see Liz nodding there going, this is like bad for anybody's mental health. And wondering what they next. When am I, when am I, and all we had to do to improve their experience was just give out appropriately timed appointments. Wow. And that's a simple thing that improves, that, that costs nothing. Yeah, and it changes uh, the balance of trust. And the, 100%. And they know now, if they, they have an appointment at 9.15, they'll be seen at 9.15 and they'll be gone out of there 9.30. Of course. And they walk in the door and the level of stress has disappeared. And that's a simple thing where you sit down and that doesn't take anything, that costs us nothing. Um, yeah. But that's what patients want. And I think we need to go start listening to that across the whole yeah. of healthcare. And that, and that could be the difference between a good experience and a bad one. I mean, uh, Donald, I've seen Donald working and he's incredibly sensitive to needs of patients. And I'm sure he'd be the first to tell you not all physicians are often cognizant of that maybe their patients don't know the procedure they're not as familiar they haven't done yeah. it a thousand times even I can like I'm a scientist and my uncle rang me once and said uh, well my dad rang me reporting about my uncle saying oh he's got prostate cancer and I went so yeah and that was the wrong <laughs> this is a man in his late 70s so that wasn't bad news but I was <laughs> too blasé to the point where I, I was I, I, I realized actually that's not fair because they don't have that information so you know, they would totally understand that. And it's very easy to inadvertently not take the reality, as Donald said, that, that people don't know this. And they people are incredibly intelligent and will be happy if you give them the information in a non-condescending way, which is something we sometimes have to work on. But yeah, it, it does make a big difference to someone's overall experience, I can only imagine. So again, really, it comes down to, so exactly the same thing happened to me with my my, my father and my, my husband, whose response was, so and similarly i was kind of got quite quite cross with them um and you know and 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 but what you're what you're saying and what it, it, it seems to come down to across the board is the language that we use to to convey the information it's not it's not simplifying the information yes. it is 
making making space for shared vocabularies and for narrative a point in a narrative where we can meet i was really struck donal when you were speaking about the 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 distinction you made between disease and illness um and that that it is it is in in capturing the narrative and in sharing the narrative because of course the doctor patient relationship and the, the sort of the scientist public relationship is founded and mediated in narrative there is no getting out of that there's no other way to do it and so until we figure out how to capture those narratives perhaps we're going to be swimming upstream a little bit i am conscious of time so we might leave it there if anybody has last comments or yeah liz wants to come in I just wanted to thank everyone for giving their time today. And I have to say, I'm always nervous when we do a, a mind reading event. I always think we're bringing together really disparate people from really different backgrounds. And often people who are speaking say, oh, you know, I have nothing in, in common with people from a different area of humanities and things. And yet every time we do it, it turns out we are all looking at similar problems from different perspectives. Uh, and every time we do one of these events, I learn so much from other people's work. And as Claire said, every time I'm so struck by so, how self-effacing people with a huge amount of expertise are, you know, it's really amazing. So I think having these conversations across disciplines is so powerful. And I absolutely think we need to be doing it earlier on in, in curriculae, like in undergraduate curriculae, both in the humanities and in medicine. Um, and in, you know, lots and lots of other areas, thinking about lots of the topics around rights and uh, cross lifespan approaches and things that have come up today. So thank you all so much for your time. And I also wanted to thank Claire, who has curated this session. As oh, well. not at all. It was it was a pleasure. I was amazed that everyone was was available, which thank God. And and thank you so much for, for being so selfless, selfless with your time. I know it's a really busy uh, it's a really busy time. I have learned so much today um, and it's been such a pleasure hearing all of you and thank you so much for bringing your expertise and sharing your time.